podcast, cutting edge conversations with the quant community. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Quantcast. Mauro Cesar here speaking. My guest today is Vladimir Peterbug, head of quant analytics and quant development at NatWest Markets. Hi, Vladimir, and welcome. How are things with you? Hi, Mauro. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast. It's been a while. I've, uh, last couple of years I've been trying to get on, but, uh, you know, it has not been very successful, but it's great to be um, on your podcast uh, after all. It's great to have you and thanks for talking to us. Sorry, it took a while, uh, but now we have the perfect chance. So the occasion is obviously the publication of your latest paper with risk, as it is often the case with our podcasts. Uh, the paper is online in risk.net and uh, it is in the June issue of uh, the print edition. It's titled The ArcSign Law for Quantile Derivatives and deals with the pricing of derivatives that are based on quantile measures uh, for the underlying. Uh, so is where, for example, uh, metrics like the median, uh, which we'll see in a second in more, in more depth, are a factor in the payoff of the derivative. Uh, so could you tell us, first of all, what is the motivation behind this paper and why do you start working on it? Of course, Maura, um, very good question. So <clears throat> as uh, often the case, at least for me, in terms of where my papers come from, it came from a question uh, from a trader who was a little puzzled with um, the market environment that he could see. And he was looking at the um, labor curve, right? Um, and he saw dislocations and the numbers he couldn't understand around the end of uh, 2021, which is, of course, was the day or the expected, let's say, day for when LIBOR would be discontinued and would be replaced with um, a risk rate plus a spread. And uh, he was looking specifically at what spread was being implied by the market uh, around that day. And he saw numbers that he couldn't quite understand because <clears throat> so, and this was happening, um, uh, let's recall, in the summer of 2020. So right after, you know, crazy markets that we had um, in the pandemic kind of um, market dislocations. So once the pandemic was over, people started focusing on what's happening again, what's happening in sort of in the labor market. And um, so he saw these numbers he couldn't quite understand. And um, at the time, the expectation was for LIBOR to um, go away and be replaced, as I said, with a risk-free rate plus a number. So a number, which is uh, you know, critically, was uh, to be calculated as the median of the um, time series of the differences between LIBOR and the risk rate. So at the time, part of the, um, this time series, a five-year time series, was ob observed, so was known what numbers would go into the calculation, but part, uh, a significant part, like a third of it, was still to be kind of calculated to, to be carried towards um, <clears throat> December 2021. Um, and uh, the trader said, look, I, had, uh, I have this time series of historical data, I have this forward rate, um, that go to the, and if I calculate the median, then, you know, the spread 
um, that should be applied for three months turning LIBOR to be clear was eight basis points, whereas he saw the market trading at, let's say, 11 basis points. And this may not sound like much, three basis points, but it's actually a huge uh, amount because we're talking about swaps, right? So, and we're talking about hundreds of trillions of notionals in swaps. In swaps. So I got um, very interested um, and kind of looked into it and um, <clears throat> um, kind of came up with an explanation um, and the paper is kind of based on, around that. Okay, and what did you find uh, in terms of uh, um, modeling? Are you proposing the full um, estimation of the curve and uh, how does that compare with the fixed uh, LAS, uh, labor adjustment spread that has been decided afterwards? So, so yeah, so the main point that uh, kind of I understood uh, pretty quickly, and again, the kind of the central theme of my paper is that the volatility of the unobserved fixings or of the differences between the LIBOR and the risk rate is a major driver of uh, the spread. So if you just look at the forward curve, which, you know, basically assumes zero volatility, then you come up with one number, which is about eight basis points. But if you incorporate the, you know, obviously a very reasonable assumption that the volatility <clears throat> is uh, that the fixings are going to be volatile, you know, in going into the future, then you can find kind of um, the parameters that more or less match the, um, the uh, what the market was kind of showing. Okay, so, so that was one um, observation, the volatility matters. And remember, the spread is a median, right? So if the spread was the average, uh, or the mean, right? Then there would be no volatility dependence. But the median is uh, turns out to be a rather nonlinear function of the future fixings. And again, just to recall history, why are we using the median for the spread? Well, that was um, the result of is the survey of the participants how this uh, number should be fixed, and most people. Well, not people, most banks, participants and uh, banks and other participants, they said, well, the median seems to make more sense because it's more robust to outliers, less liable to manipulation, perhaps. What I think uh, they didn't realize is that, yes, it's more robust, but it's actually volatility dependent. So you have to, when you price, um, products that are linked to median, which basically most of the swaps were after the, the uh, consultation concluded, um, are volatility dependent. Okay, so there was kind of first realization and the second one, which is the bulk of the paper, is how do you actually um, do calculate the, uh, the right number um, in a fast way, right? So we're talking about swaps, we're talking about massive kind of uh, positions and uh, quantities of swaps. So running a Monte Carlo is not uh, an option really. Um, when you build curves that uh, take, let's as, as we call it a few milliseconds. So 
finding a fast approximation to the um, right number is what the kind of the bulk of the paper is about. I see. In the paper, you use a uh, the so-called arc sine law, which um, uh, I, I guess it would be good to uh, refresh our memories on what it is, at least mine. Um, but also, was wondering how did you realize that uh, the arc sine law, which is the concept and standoff probability theory that is uh, somewhat dated, uh, quite a few decades ago, uh, how did you realize that it was relevant to this problem? Uh, an excellent question. Uh, well, I, I think um, I'm not entirely sure if dated is the right uh, word, right? So the laws of uh, mathematics are not dated. <laughs> they, you know, they have been discovered a while ago. You're absolutely true. So the arc sine law uh, is, comes uh, from about 1939. Uh, so I guess that's what about 80 years ago. Um, and it basically tells us mm, the law of uh, the distribution of the so-called occupation times of Brownian motion. So how much time does Brownian motion spend in, in certain um, uh, areas, okay? So why is that? So how did I kind of make the connection? Well, what I realized is so we have a model for uh, the median so what we really it boils down to is calculating the expectation of a median of a time series that has been partially absorbed okay and uh, <clears throat> and then um, if you do the math you realize well sorry the is um, if you look at the zero volatility case Often in our, in our you know, um, calculations, when we try to do fast approximations, we look at sort of limiting cases, right? So in this case, zero volatility case was very clear. You just use kind of the forward part of the um, curve in, in calculating the median. But uh, then I said, well, let's look at the the opposite, the kind of the other extreme uh, of the calculation, which is um, taking the volatility to well infinity, basically, and see what is the expected value of the median when the volatility is infinite or goes to infinity. Okay, and if you do that, so I guess that was the main, I would say, well, one one of the you know, main insights to look at at that particular uh, limit. So, and if you look at that limit and you take volatility to infinity in the model where we have uh, Brownian motion um, driving future observations of the, um, um, of the time series we're interested in plus uh, kind of time dependent shift. So, it turns out when you take volatility to the limit, well, that thing basically converges to something that does not depend on the time dependent um, mean. And it just becomes um, pure Brownian motion because the volatility kind of kills the drift in a sense. <clears throat> and then what you're left with is um, probability that a function for the 
uh, occupation time for a standard Brownian motion. And that turns out to follow the oxide law. So that, that was kind of the cool, cool result. And um, I must say, obviously I looked at the literature <clears throat> around this and in the 1990s, um, people ha have studied um, um, derivatives linked to uh, the median or to the quantile and um, not the derivatives that actually existed, but more as sometimes is the case in some of the research kind of uh, what if scenario, let's say if we had a derivative linked to a quantile, um, how would we price it? And, and they looked at this the kind of standard Brownian motion of Brownian motion with um, drift, uh, constant drift rather. And actually, they did, uh, people derived pretty cool uh, results, uh, and some big names, uh, you know, contributed to that. So, I guess this one is uh, taking some of the ideas, and yeah, arc sine law is uh, kind of um, embedded in that very deeply. So this, uh, my research is taking that um, idea in pushing it to, um, you know, much more realistic models, basically. I see. So at the time you're saying um, the structures that, were, uh, that they were investigating were still just theoretical, they didn't exist in practice. But what you're doing now is actually applicable to uh, structure that exist in the market, right? I mean, uh, yes, exactly. So in the early 90s, they were essentially made up um, for a period of time in 2020, this was as a, I don't know if I mentioned it, but in my mind, the median was the most important. The median of the spread of the spread between the LIBOR and risk rate was the most important number uh, in the financial markets, just because of the sheer volume of swaps that were linked to it, right? Uh, <clears throat> it was, you know, relatively short-lived in the sense that now we know what the spread is, so kind of it's not that, you know, exciting. <laughs> but um, also, in the meantime, there have been products that uh, are, you know, quantile derivatives. So um, there were some uh, equity-linked uh, structures, Napoleon-like structures that would pay, you know, the nth, um, highest return, monthly return over a year, which is clearly a quantile derivative. So there is um, definitely applicability to um, other products uh, that have been traded and that are traded right now. Oh, thanks. And uh, well, thanks for uh, driving us through the thought process of how you link the arc sign law to, to this. It's very interesting. Now, we'd like to switch topic and uh, drag you into the debate on machine learning and deep learning. Oh, uh, an no. area, oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> an area I know, uh, an area of research you have been somewhat skeptical about, uh, but to which you have, you have recently contributed with the paper that we published in January, uh, in which basically you and your co-authors were um, Finding finding a way, uh, a technique to uh, bound the results and make sure that you uh, get stable results out of uh, a network. 
Um, now, my, my question is, what is your view on this uh, area of research? Do you still see it as a, uh, do, you, do you still think it has a sort of a hype component? Or do you think there are solid results now that justify all the investments that uh, are made on, uh, on its research? Oh, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> Uh, look, I think it's a mix, right? So there's definitely kind of a hype component to um, this research, right? So markets themselves are driven by hype more often than we would like, right? Uh, in a similar way, um, sort of quant research is prone to also being, um, in my view, and again, this strictly is my view, uh, is uh, prone to be driven by the latest um, trends. And I often find <clears throat> papers that talk about how to apply, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning in our field um, that are, to me, is nothing but, you know, you have a hammer and let's look for nails and, you know, Let's whack them on the head and put out a paper about it. Having said that, there are definitely, you know, the advances in uh, computer uh, modeling that, um, sorry, computer kind of uh, architecture and the capabilities that are definitely helping us uh, to solve real problems, right? I think um, my view is. We should try to combine the thinking that goes kind of into our traditional um, uh, quant modeling with the capabilities that the new computer architectures, the new um, software packages like you know TensorFlow or whatever bring, and, and that are driven by uh, machine learning. Uh, advances in you know other fields of computer science and so on, image um, recognition. We should definitely keep an eye on it, and we should try to incorporate the two. But it has to be done in, in my view, in kind of a thoughtful way, right? And that's what our paper was about, which was um, how do we use uh, neural networks to extrapolate so neural networks are def, uh, reasonably good in interpolating so if you give it a few points or a bunch, whole bunch of points and uh, and you sort of approximate a function which is a very common problem for us right <clears throat> so if you ask for a value that is um within the range of the um input variables that you as people say trained your model on or basically you used in fitting then um, neural networks actually super good in uh, fitting that. But if you go outside of the range, then actually there, there are no guarantees, basically. You, you don't know what a neural network would do, like a sort of naively fit neural network, right? So that was the problem we kind of looked at. And it's a very important problem because you want to be able to explain your results. You want to be able to look at stress scenarios. Um, and I said, all right, how do we combine 
the advances that we've had in the um, sort of machine learning neural network technology with uh, what we do as quants, which is one of the core skills, I guess, is um, uh, calculating asymptotics, you know, trying to figure out what happens for larger, small values of various parameters. How do we combine the two? So the end result is actually uh, a good one. What are your current research projects? What are you working on that we might see in the future in our pages? Mm. Look, the median and the quantile derivatives are still very fascinating to me. Um, so the paper that uh, you guys are publishing uh, is focusing on a situation that is kind of specific to LIBOR derivatives in the sense that um, the LIBOR reform rather in the sense that we have a certain number of observations that we have and then some that are not very known not known and then you know how do we calculate the expected median using various sort of limiting um, <coughs> approaches you can expand it and kind of go more into the realm of more like abstract math um, and say well what if you had a time series where you didn't have any historical observations, but you had a um, you know a realistic model that we believe in in terms of time dependent drift and so on. Um, what can we say there? It turns out that that's <clears throat> a much more difficult uh, math problem. So and you know one of the things that kind of gets me excited are difficult math problems. Um, so that's one area where I am. Um, trying to do something. Um, another area is actually back again to, I know we try to leave machine learning <laughs> out of it, but <laughs> you know, you kind of have to stay on trend in some sense or, you know, to try to bring the right level of rigor and um, to kind of marry the uh, traditional techniques in my mind and kind of the new ones. So again, with the uh, some of the same uh, co-authors, I we wrote the um, uh, the asymptotics paper. Uh, we're looking at basically trying to understand what makes neural networks as good as they are. Okay, I, and it's a very kind of general question and we by no means we're the only ones who are looking at into that but we're trying to find kind of ways of um, explaining or you know why they um, yeah basically why they are as good as they are there are some theorems um, that they say well you know a single layer neural network can approximate any function which is like fine, but people um, empirically find that multi-layer um, neural networks actually are a lot better for the same number of parameters than single layer, and we're trying to contribute uh, something to understanding why that is the case. So. Okay, so are you actually working on a, a general understanding of the robustness uh, or explainability of uh, uh, neural networks, or are you uh, using that for an application? Are you showing that with an application? Uh, 
Uh, it's more the former, I would say. Yeah, we try. It's is. I think um, people commented uh, extensively. In our uh, world, it's very important to understand what the neural network and why the neural network is doing what it's doing. Right. So to explain to the regulators, to clients, to whoever, why you know it it does what it does. So. It's very much, it's more, I would say, theoretical than kind of uh, my normal uh, motivations are. Uh, but it's very interesting, yeah, to explain why um, uh, yeah, so how to explain the um, the results of a neural network, I think is, is a good way to put it. Uh, it it is a very interesting problem and one has been debated for for a few years now. Uh, aside from this one, uh, what do you think are the um, needs in the industry that quant finance, you, your colleagues uh, from any institution should try to address? What are the urgent questions to that need to be answered? Look, I mean, we've been doing it for quite a number of years now, so I'm not entirely sure there are urgent questions <clears throat> that are not related to market development. So there is always, of course, so my point is there. there's always, you know, new market developments. Uh, for example, as we just discussed, the library reform and the um, um, sort of changes it brings to the market and uh, how to understand them. Uh, and uh, actually that reminds me of, you know, the situation 10 years ago, right? When we had uh, as people started to realize then um, after the financial crisis that LIBOR is not the right curve to um, use for discounting and you should use OIS. And, you know, that took a you know, couple of years, I think, propagate and those who were there first uh, made a lot of money, uh, allegedly, uh, no names named. So um, same thing with the with uh, the current library reform, you know, those who figured out first, uh, I think, you know, were at an advantage. And the, these things are always coming up. So in terms of <clears throat> The, the, the exciting thing about being in this uh, field is that every year you have some new development that requires, um, you know, some thinking and uh, kind of whoever comes up with the right answer first, uh, you know, makes uh, makes the money. So that that's kind of an ongoing thing in terms of the um, fundamental um problems that we need to solve these probably have not changed you know much over the last 20 years it's how quickly we can do the calculations how accurately mm -hmm. we can do the calculations you know how can we use the tools that we that are now available like the cloud the machine learning uh stuff so speed and accuracy is still very well for us kind of practicing quants is still really the thing to focus on. I see, I see. And uh, 
One area where we uh, that we covered a lot in the past few months, in the past years, so is volatility modeling. I'm not talking mm. only about rough volatility, uh, which has always been quite uh, quite popular in the past year or so, but other other volatility related papers that we have published and we've seen. Uh, do you think that is an area where uh, the industry needs some improvement, or, or or not really? What do you think? Uh, again, I think it'll be kind of a bit of a party pooper and say, I think we solved all the volatility problem, volatility interpolation problems that we actually have. And I think, again, I'm coming from the rates background, right? So, um, and relatively speaking, in the rates world, in the world of interest rates, volatility is relatively simple. So, I would say we don't need uh, at the uh, well, at the um, I don't want to offend the, some of my good friends uh, who are into rough volatility, but I would say, uh, you know, in rates, we don't really need it. Um, but and I accept that in equities, uh, you know, it's ever more complicated because that's where kind of the market developments uh, are. So, me not knowing enough and possibly being somewhat ignorant. Um, of uh, what the situation is, it still feels we don't, like we kind of solved it 95%, and maybe there is value in solving in the last 5%, but not in the interest rates, but possibly in the equities world. I see, I see. Vladimir, thanks very much for uh, talking to us today. It was very, very interesting, very insightful. Uh, finally, you made it, you, sp you spoke with us uh, on our podcast, but I really hope uh, you'll be back soon. So thanks Thank again. you. Thank you, Mauro. Yeah, and I will be waiting for my second invitation um, <laughs> for one of these. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. Bye-bye. Thanks. And right. thanks, everybody, for listening.